Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our Warning Premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Fred Gutenberg, uh, somebody who has taken tragedy and imbued as best he can it with the meaning, the conviction, the hope that he can make things better and that what happened to him, his family, and his beautiful daughter, Jamie, on February the 14th, will never, ever happen again in this country. But sadly, it does, time and time and time again. Uh, there are few people that I admire more, uh, that I respect more, and who I am more in awe of for his simple ability to inspire after a tragedy that I think for a generation of American parents is profoundly our worst fear. The idea that you can drop your child off at school, a place where they are supposed to be safe and know that they may never come home again. And that fear uh, was realized for Fred Gutenberg and his family and 16 other American families in Florida one day. And this is something that has happened all over America and is allowed to continue to happen in part because of the spinelessness of a political class that is intimidated by extremist organizations, by their menace, and is afraid to take the steps necessary to protect the most vulnerable amongst us, our school children, but in the end, all of us. So, Fred Gutenberg, welcome. Thank you. It's good to see you uh, in person. Uh, I know we've followed each other for quite some time, but I think this is our first time actually doing an interview with each other. So, um, thanks for asking me to be on. It is. It's a real privilege. Fred, tell me about the painting behind you. Yeah, that's my daughter. Um, my daughter was a beautiful, competitive dancer. Uh, she she put every bit of her energy into being the best possible dancer that she could be. She, as a dancer, was known for her amazing leaps. And somebody painted that for me off of a photo of one of her leaps. Um, and I leave it there because as you can see where I sit, it looks like she's standing over my shoulder. And it's just my way of always having her standing on my shoulders, pushing me forward as I do this. Um, you know, Steve, she should have turned 20 last week on July 13th. Um, and she was killed when she was 14. Um, it didn't get any easier. Uh, all these years having another birthday. In fact, this one felt particularly hard. I miss my kid. I have a hard time even having the courage to face you as a father 
of a daughter who is the same age as Jamie, uh, um, who was born in September of 2003, and also the father of a, of a son who was the same age as the children uh, executed in Newton, Connecticut, Newtown, Connecticut. Um, and I think about being a parent. And you were a parent like me with children. And you see these stories and you know in an abstract sense that this deadly danger is there. Mm -hmm. In the same way that I suppose people win the lottery. You don't know anyone firsthand. And then one day, as has happened over and over again in America, um, it happens to you at, yeah. at the school, to your family, to your daughter. And one of the things that I was struck by is you made a comment on social media about Ron DeSantis and his pessimism. And you said, of all people, I have a right, as you certainly do, to have a terrible attitude towards your country and a great pessimism towards it. And you do not. You have faith and hope that DeSantis clearly does not. And one of the things I was I was very interested about talking to you about is the sense of faith and hope mm -hmm. that you have retained in your country. And you've also talked about since the tragedy, though you remain close to your rabbi, you have withdrawn from the practice of your of your faith. Mm -hmm. And that the corresponding faith in your country versus faith in a higher power how do you relate to those two the maintenance of one the loss of a of another against the endurance just to continue moving forward yeah wow um what a question um here's the thing my faith comes from having traveled this country literally almost nonstop since my daughter was killed. Um, I am a person who does understand what his voice has meant to this movement and who has true guilt over the fact that I wasn't doing anything until it was my kid. And as I've traveled the country, I have found Everywhere I've gone, whether it was red or blue, it doesn't matter. People who just embrace me, who shower me with love over my loss, who tell me they understand, who support me, who tell me they don't support the political climate that led this to happen. And again, I'm not talking about in places like New York. I'm talking about when I travel around Florida, when I go to a place like Texas, um, when I go to a place like, you know, Missouri or other just places where you think there's no chance 
But everywhere I go, I meet amazing people, real people who, who, who get it, who have others that they love and who want to protect them. And as long as I keep meeting people like them, I have hope and I have faith. And I believe if you look just at the election since 2018, while it's been a struggle and it's been hard, the hope and faith has been warranted. We've been taking really incremental small steps, but steps in the right direction. Yeah, there's also steps in certain states backwards. I get it. Um, but I, but I have no choice but to have hope because it's the hope that keeps me moving forward to fight because all I want to do is stop the next one. As for religion, listen, I was, I'm a Jewish person. I was raised in a conservative temple. I, I've practiced my entire life. Um, Four months before my daughter was killed, my brother died of cancer related to his service in 9-11. He was 50 years old. My brother ran the triage for the World Trade Center uh, and amazingly survived that. The building collapsed on him and his group of 10 doctors and where they hid for whatever reason didn't collapse. But in 17, 2017, he died of the cancer that comes from that. And I'll never forget a really deep conversation with the rabbi talking about God's plan um, and how my brother is in another place now where he's needed and how he did more in 50 years of his life than most people will ever get to do in 100 years. And it made sense to me for my brother. And then my daughter was killed. And I can't reconcile it. I can't understand in a from the standpoint of a religious capacity, how this could have happened. Um, and so, yeah, I'm disconnected right now from the belief in a higher power. Uh, John Kasich years ago had a, an almost day long um, conversation with me when I was in Ohio and we got pretty deep on this. And he said to me, just don't ever close off the possibility of finding your way back. And that's where I'm at. I've never closed off the possibility, but I haven't gotten there yet. But boy, I have faith in the people who I meet across this amazing country, people like you. You know, I'll be real honest. Um, politically, you and I probably have spent most of our lives disconnected from each other. But here we are because we both love our country and we love our democracy and we love the idea of public safety. And we have found a way to talk to each other. That gives me faith. Really extraordinary answer. Do you ever feel the calling to run for office? I have been asked many times. Um, you know, when, when Ted Deutsch announced his retirement, I was asked directly by Ted, as well as the current congressman, Jared Moskowitz, who's one of my closest friends, Jared asked me to run as well before he made his final decision. But I, I made a decision for myself and for my family never to do that um, for a few reasons. I didn't start fighting because I had this desire for a political life. 
I started running my mouth because I had a cause that I believed in and the ability to speak purely about how I feel, the ability to praise those who deserve it, but to sincerely call out those who need to be called out in, in unfiltered terms matters more to me than running for office. And I, I just know when you serve in office, there's things like a decorum, you know, and, 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 and ways of behaving amongst one another that honestly, this guy doesn't feel like doing. And, and I just never tried to pretend I'm anything other than Jesse and Jamie's dad. That's who I am. It's who I want to be. Um, and as Jesse and Jamie's dad, I want to hold every one of these lunatics accountable for the things they say and the things they do that put us at risk. You mentioned DeSantis. I despise the guy and I want him to lose and he's going to lose and he's going to lose because people like me who live in Florida will make sure everyone around the country knows the truth about him and he's going to lose. Um, they say things on a daily basis, you know it, you call them out for it, that aren't true and that put us at risk. I want to spend my time being a truth teller, taking them on, but not burdened by fundraising, not burdened by this need to go along and get along. That's just not who I am. I want to ask you about the first time you ever met Ron DeSantis. Do you yeah. recall the occasion? I do. Um, it was probably in his very first month um, as governor. Um, he he can he made commitments to the Parkland families, and it was part of how we as families felt a kinship to him early on. One of the commitments he made was for accountability in the Broward Sheriff's Office. The Broward Sheriff's Office failed my family and the other families, and he um, quickly came in and said he was going to remove the sheriff from office. And I supported him. And there was a big press conference down here, which he came to. And, and he was already under the impression that I didn't like him because I had been, for the most, because I had been really vocal at not wanting him to win. Um, but I was supporting him on this. And it's a, it's what happened was there was a big press conference. I did speak. I was asked to make sure that I don't go off on him, which I wasn't planning to do. Um, and he and his office then had me come to Tallahassee at a later date, as with some of the other Parkland families, to testify in support of the decision to remove that sheriff. Here's the thing. I was wrong. And I'm going to tell you why I was wrong to support him. I was warned back then by many who are much smarter than I am when it comes to politics that if this decision, while emotionally it felt good to me, becomes validated, it's going to empower him to do other things that may not be lawful, that may not be constitutional. And we, 
and unfortunately in Florida saw him go on a power trip, removing people from office that he had no right removing. Um, it was my first experience with him. I supported him in it, and I was wrong to do so. What was your first impression of meeting him as a man? Take me, take yeah. me to the two minutes before you meet him. Where, where are you, and who are we you? We were standing on a Is patio. All of the families. Um, I can't recall if all of the families were there, but I know several of them. Okay. And we were standing on a patio in front of the Broward Sheriff's office. And my recollection of him is actually really can be summed up in a word. Was it before you before you get to that word, is the patio in a public space? Are there cameras on you? Are you in a protected alcove? I'm I'm trying to get a get a sense. So there there were cameras. Is there anybody who's not a parent of one of the murdered children that's that's that is that's in the group? Are there lawyers there? Are there other law enforcement? What is the what is happening in that moment? So so the, the Broward Sheriff's Office is a big, huge building. Going into the building, you go through security. Um, but the parking lot. You, anyone can park in the parking lot and walk up to this patio in front of the building. Um, but typically, you don't unless you have a reason to be there. Um, so you had our families there. There were staff members of the governors. Um, there was the new sheriff and some of his personnel. And there was media. Media was there. This was a planned, called-for press conference. Um, so there was a bit of a crowd and, and the governor gets out of his vehicle and he comes up to all of you. So he, uh, this is going back quite a few years. I don't believe I saw him arrive in his vehicle. I believe he probably came in another door and walked out of the building and met us there is the way I recall it happening, but I can't tell you with a hundred percent certainty. What I can tell you is um, meeting him there was the first time. And then we all went into the building and we had a few minutes with him in the building. And and what is meeting him like? Was he alone? Was he with his wife? She was not there um, at this. Um, meeting with him. He walks up to you and he says what? Not much. And that's, honestly, that's always my recollection of him, because I've met him personally multiple times now, including in his own office in Tallahassee. He's uncomfortable engaging and, and just a straight up conversation like you and I are doing. It's not his normal thing. Um, and I just found him awkward. Did he say, I'm sorry? Do you remember what his first words were to the group? Did he address everybody individually? Did he say, I'm Ron DeSantis? Did he introduce himself by name? Did he say, I'm your governor? How, how, how did he present himself to everyone individually or as a group? I, I, this is about five years ago, and okay. I, I just, I don't recall, 
I, I, I recall that uh, he gave a public statement at the podium, as did I, as did some of the other family members, and as did the new sheriff. Um, I don't recall him uh, acknowledging each of us individually when we were inside together as a group. Um, you know, I'm fairly confident he uh, talked to us about accountability. That was the that was kind of hit the focus a lot back then, um, and how he's going to hold people accountable. Um, I remember there being conversation back then, which turned out to be accurate, that this is going to be an ongoing process because it's going to have to get approved and, you know, he's going to need our help and our support. Um, but I don't remember specific words or, or that kind of thing. It's quite some time ago. But, but you found him to be less memorable, I guess, is the... <laughs> <laughs> right is the, is the description uh right? listen i mean that is a that is a perfect way to sum it up um he there are people you meet and you'll never forget it right i mean there just are um and their words stay with you there's not a single thing he said to me other than the use of the word accountability um that stays with me i i just what stays with me more than the words is just this awkwardness um it just wasn't something he felt comfortable with um and i remember i can't remember exactly how many months later it was but a couple of months later when we were all in tallahassee um and and some of the family members including me did testify in support of the decision to remove the sheriff i remember when we were alone on lunch you know there's a big room off to the side of his office where they had prepared like sandwiches and stuff for us to have lunch and he came in to greet us and 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 again i, I think you just summed it up it just wasn't memorable he came in there was some small talk, um, but but I just felt like I was dealing with an awkward person. Let's talk about Marco Rubio for a second. Uh, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna role play for a minute, and I'm gonna take the side of the of the Second Amendment advocates, and pretend that I'm a U.S. senator, and I say to you, and I say, Fred, I'm very sorry tragedy is unspeakable i'll vote to harden the infrastructure of every school to fund cops but i don't believe government has the authority to restrict firearms and so i'm sorry i suspect that is not what marco rubio says to you when the doors are closed and the lights are, and the camera lights are off, right? That he says something very different. I mm -hmm. could be wrong. 
what have you learned about disingenuousness I, from I've described, Marco Rubio yeah. and, and his fellow travelers? Is it something that you have previously experienced in life? Something that you <laughs> knew existed in an abstract, but sit there on any given day and say, holy shit, he... I was sitting there and that guy looked me in the eye and he said A, B, and C. Yeah. And then he went out and D, E, and F. What several years now, really yeah. four of tragedy and a PhD in politics that that has followed on. What what have you learned about disingenuousness? So 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 Marco, I've described him before. And, and I and I just think it's an apt description. Um, being with him alone in a room is like being with a dog chasing its tail. Um, he'll run you in circles, but you'll never get anywhere. Um, and and I say that because so everyone knows how my initiation to Marco began, which was the CNN town hall a week after my daughter was killed, where I did challenge him, um, and. Three weeks later, I was in D.C. for my very first visit. Um, the day before I went to D.C., I was in the home of a guy by the name of Al Hoffman, who many may know. He's a, he's a very wealthy man. Um, he owned a, a company that basically built Parkland and many other big communities around the country. And he was an extremely large Republican donor. In fact, George Bush appointed him as an ambassador. Um, and Al Hoffman was Marco Rubio's single biggest donor. Um, after the parking shooting, Al reached out to me a few days later and said, I'd like to invite you to my home. And I went. And it was the day before I met with Marco, three weeks after the shooting. And Al told me, that effective immediately, he will no longer support another Republican who is not right on this issue. And when I told him I was going to see Marco the next day, he said, well, you can tell Marco for me that he's cut off. And so the reason why that matters is I was in Marco's office the next day and Marco did exactly as you assumed he did. We kind of ran in circles going nowhere. I really think we can do something here. But, you know, we've got to do a little this, a little that. But, you know, so I ended by saying, so I'll tell you what, while we stand here today, the Republican Florida House is debating and going to vote on gun safety legislation that the Republican Florida Senate passed yesterday and the Republican Florida governor at the time, Rick Scott, said he will sign. Why don't you walk out with me and say you support this? I think it'll help the Florida House members who are Republicans and sitting on the fence, help them to be able to move forward. And he said to me, I can't do that. And I said, why? He goes, I don't know what's in the bill. I said, yes, you do, but I can pull it up on my phone for you. He said, I can't do that. I said, that's the problem you take from the, 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 with the money you take from the gun lobby. I said, however, you're going to lose your traditional donors if you maintain that stance. 
And he goes, you can't say that. I said, yes, I can. I said, do you know Al Hoffman? And he said, yes, I do. I said, I was with Al yesterday. Al has a message for you. And he said, what's that? I said, you're cut off. Um, and Al put out a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal days later, putting out his plan. So here's the thing about Marco. I spent the next year regularly meeting with him in his office, having phone conversations, trying to find a place where he could feel like he was doing something on this issue. But I felt like I was just going after that dog chasing his tail, running in circles, never really anything gonna happen. And I finally gave up and I haven't tried since that first year because he was useless, he was dishonest. He told me the things he was working on that he wasn't um, and, and I gave up on him. What frustrates you about the Democrats? Well, so so I'll tell you, so I'll answer it by saying this, because I don't want you to think I, I dislike all Republicans. I don't, um, you know, because I really think it's important to know. I mean, again, you're a former Republican. One of my closest friends now is former Congressman Joe Walsh. And 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 I, I hate this version of your former party. Um, but I really, really believe anything meaningful requires a bipartisan approach. What, what frustrates me about the Democrats, um, especially some of them, is they are as ideologically driven just in another direction as some of the Republicans. And, and What do you mean by that? Well, they, listen, I think there are people who believe there's only one way to solve a problem. And if you don't do it this way and I don't get everything that I want, then I can't support it. And, and I don't believe anything gets solved with that, kind of a, with that kind of an approach. The thing about the Democratic Party is when I describe individuals that way, it's individuals in the party, right? Versus this current version of the Republican Party where the entire Republican Party has gone lockstep in the wrong direction and none of that and and the party apparatus is now stuck there you have individuals in the party in the democratic party who do not agree with me um you know um i've not uh I, i've tried over the years to work with republicans um i in my heart i'd love to see an assault weapons ban i haven't made it my primary cause because I want to actually take really meaningful steps, whatever they are, to lower the gun violence death rate. What what do you want to see happen as a matter of public policy? What, so, what should be done? So number one would be repeal of PLACA. Number two, when, when Jamie was born 20 years ago, there were only 200 million weapons in America. Today, 20 years later, we have over 400 million plus ghost guns. When Jamie was born 20 years ago, AR-15s were less than 2% of all guns sold. Today, they're 25%. The reality is those guns are on the streets already. So I believe we need to do something to address ammunition. I believe that we need to have background checks on ammunition. 
if you are a prohibited user of a firearm in America, by law, you are also prohibited from buying ammunition, but there's no requirement for a background check on ammunition. And so any one of the bad guys who's got guns because they stole it, they traded for it, they got it somehow illicitly, they can walk into a store and buy the bullets and nobody will check. I believe, and there's currently a law sitting in Congress called Jamie's Law, named after my daughter, that seeks to extend background checks to ammunition. I think that lowers the gun violence death rate immediately. Um, I, I would also ban high capacity magazines. I would raise the age for all firearms purchases to 21. That doesn't mean you can't be on your own private property using a firearm, but to purchase, you should be 21. Um, you know, this is just, that's just some, a basic list. And, and again, in my heart, I would love to see a ban on AR-15s. I also understand the politics of this country and where we're at. And that's a fight that I just don't know that we can win, but I wanna do whatever we can do right now that will lower the gun violence death rate, decrease the instances of gun violence, and reduce the severity of gun violence injuries when gun violence happens. What percentage of these school shootings have been committed by an AR-15? Do you know the answer? So let me take this further step back from that. So there's about 115,000 schools in America. Since Columbine, there have been fewer than 400 school shootings. And I don't say that to minimize the idea of school shootings, because gun violence is far more diverse than just what happens in schools. But the truth is, a lot of there's not a lot of school shootings. When they happen, they're horrific and they are tragic. Trust me, I know. Um, but there's it's it's not as if the big issues of school violence involve guns. Now, I will tell you. Uh, as a percentage of the 400 or so that have happened, I don't know the percentage of those that have been done with AR-15s. I would suspect it's it's quite a few, but I don't have a percentage for you. I would suspect that it's an overwhelming number, but I was struck by something that you said um, generationally. Columbine in 97, mm -hmm. there was the Jonesboro shooting in 94. Yep. I don't remember any before that. Were, so, so were, was this was this a phenomenon? Now, I was I was twenty three. I wasn't. I don't. I don't remember a lot of the college years. You know, being being dialed into any of this. But I I just I don't. I have no awareness before that Jonesboro shooting of this existing at a at a school right right shooting level. What you just said is the reason I wrote the book American Carnage, okay, which takes on the lies and the myths because it wasn't a problem before. So, so as a country, this is this is a relatively new phenomenon for us. Uh, you know, we have always been a country with gun safety laws. We've always been a country of gun owners who respected safety of people who believed in responsible firearms ownership. And in fact, we've always been a country that passed laws to ensure that that safety was happening, that guns were in the hands of responsible people. Here's when it started to change. 
and why you're you're 100 correct in your recollection in 1977 in cincinnati the nra was holding a convention where they were taken over by a guy by the name of harlan carter um, you may have heard the name maybe not harlan carter nobody knew it at the time was a convicted murderer but he changed a vowel in his name um, from an A to an E or an E to, I don't remember what it was, but nobody knew that. And Harlan ran the NRA for a whole bunch of years. Um, he's the guy who brought Wayne LaPierre in. And he's the one who set the NRA on this new course to get involved in politics, to raise money, and to push legislation. And through the 80s, they really laid all the groundwork. But in the 90s, you started to see laws shifting. There were shall carry laws and the big, big shift really took place after 2000 in Florida with Sandra Ground in 2005. Um, so the idea of, of these shootings all over the place, it wasn't our country's history. It's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, AR-15s, I, I, I told you before, it, 20 years ago, they were fewer than 2% of all guns sold. It wasn't the ban ending in 2004 that changed that either, because if you go to 2008, they were still fewer than 5% of all guns sold. In 2008, two things happened. And I have my theory on which one had the bigger impact. One was President Obama. That was one thing that happened. A lot of people believe that led to the surge in AR-15 sales. I have another theory, and I think if I could get, this gets back to Plaka. There was a big Supreme Court decision, um, and in that Supreme Court decision, uh, 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 Antonin Scala, as we all know, had some really important things to say on guns. But one of the things that he said was the term in his decision, common use. He defined common use, literally added a term to the whole debate. And he said in that Supreme Court decision, any weapon in common use at the time can't be restricted. Now that never existed before 2008. And the reason why that matters, it was after 2008 where you saw the explosion in AR-15 sales. It is now, um, I would argue, the industry went on a business strategy following that Supreme Court decision, the Heller Supreme Court decision. I would argue they went on a business strategy of producing weapons in a mass quantity year after year after year for 15 years, putting them into a position where you now have Republicans in Congress claiming you can't do anything about them because they are in common use. I think that 2008 Supreme Court strategy set off a business strategy that we now have to live with. But it wasn't always this way. You are absolutely correct to look back just 30 years ago and say, I don't remember it being like this because it wasn't. Does that mean in, in your interpretation of it or understanding of your interpretation of it that the AR-15 could not be added to the 1934 Federal Firearms Act as a prohibited weapon? Listen, I... I um, Ted, my dear friend, Ted Deutsch, really thought strongly of that idea, and I agree with him. I think that's a solution. Um, I, I, I hope it's a solution that people will um, 
pursue more assertively should there not be the possibility of a ban. Um, but the AR-15 is not a weapon that we all grew up with just as, you know, in our homes. It's, it's literally a 15-year phenomenon in our lives. Yeah. And we see the impact of that now. Well, what I think that the the strategy that should be adopted by the gun lobby and gun safety advocates in this country is very simple. The, the overwhelming majority of mass shootings uh, are conducted by, by AR-15s. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is very simple, clean piece of legislation. Right. Somebody walks to the Senate floor. They can put one together on it. I think they can carry weapons on the on the floor of the Congress. They can hold it up and say, I'm going to add this weapon and all of its derivatives to the 1934 Federal Firearms Act, which includes sawed off shotguns and the Thompson submachine gun for the sake of proving to every Second Amendment advocate that you can have both the Second Amendment and a category of weapon that is illegal as we have had for 90 years in America. And the idea that seems to have been stomped out, faded to dust, is the idea that a ban of a weapon or a category thereof is inconsistent with the Second Amendment, which for nearly 100 years it has not been. And the inability to articulate that and to say this weapon of mass death, we are going to make illegal. We're adding it to the 1934 law with some type of grandfathered clause in there. And then secondly, to what you said, and I think this is such an important point. We're not talking about saying guns kill people and therefore gun companies should be sued. What we're saying is that gun companies should not have a special law that says they are immune from the law. The protections afforded to the gun companies come from the law, and therefore, if someone should seek to sue them, their protections will be found as a defendant under the laws of whatever jurisdiction that they're sued in, meaning that the gun company should be treated like every other company and every other human being right, that exists under the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States. But th- and that's all I want. And, and I'm so glad you're, you're making that clear. Listen, I don't want to sue them for a paycheck. I want to sue them because I want the documents. I want the tobacco moment that forces safety to be the paramount concern. I think if we get them under- And there's zero it, chance it's not there, right? I mean, there's zero chance it's not there. A hundred percent. If we get them right. under oath, and if we and if we have the chance to interview them, I am. I just believe. I'm, I'm certain of it that we can prove that they had a business strategy. Because again, go back 15 years when this all started. They said these were for hunting and 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 sport. That was a really small and by the way, declining marketplace at the time. Okay, 
I think we can show that they knowingly produced far in excess of what they knew their market, they said was at the time and continue to do so. And that in doing so, they then developed new marketing strategies to continue to push these onto our streets and into the hands of kids like the one who killed my daughter and that they knew it would happen and that they had no plan for safety, that they had no plan to ensure these guns wouldn't be used in the way that we now see them being used, that they had a business strategy to put them into common use as defined by the Heller decision without regard for safety. I want to prove that. I want America to hear it from them, not from me. And I want America to see what they've done to our country to make it less safe so that that kind of accountability, just like it happened with tobacco, will force change that allows gun owners to go forward, rights respected, but safety also as a consideration. There's been an immense culture change, as you as you said. Um, anybody who was a gun fetishist in the era that we grew up in would have been looked upon as a weirdo. Anybody who was a gun owner, um, who was part of a gun-owning family, a hunting family, you know, when you talked about guns, safety was the paramount issue when you talked about them. Um, you know, yes. it was not, people did not dress up uh, like they were in militias, um, in camouflage patterns. I mean, all of that, as you said, is a, is a recent phenomenon. Let me ask you this question. What about the idea of saying to the Department of Defense, under law, you can't buy ammunition from anybody who also sells on the civilian market? I love that idea. Um, you know, which would raise the price of ammunition on the sil on the on the civilian market as it as the manufacturing collapsed. You could further tax it, right? And you could impose all sorts of burdensome mail regulations over it. And I, I, I and I just wonder great idea. And I just wonder. When you when you think about it, how much energy is there in the movement to fundamentally put the gun business out of business and be transparent and be transparent about it to affect it as is to say, listen, if you're making a hunting rifle, right, a high quality hunting rifle, you know, you're you're not you're not not part of this fight, right? You know, no one's. But, you know, you're selling AR-15s, you're selling semi-automatic weapons of war, you're trying to establish them as a really common household weapon, um, creating a profound societal danger. We're, we're going to do everything to break your back. Shouldn't it be that intentional? You know, after Jamie was killed, um, the day after I attended this vigil, vigil in Parkland that I ended up being asked to speak at, I did. And it was that night speaking there that for the first time in 24 hours, it hit me that this was gun violence. I did this to my family. And I went into my house that night after speaking. And I said, I'm going to break that effing gun lobby. Um, and days later, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey called me. 
Um, he got my number. We had a mutual connection. And I've stayed very close with him ever since. And he said, and he was a new governor at the time. And he said, so tell me what breaking the gun lobby means to you. How can that happen? I said, go after the money. Go after the money. And I guess I forgot that I said that to him, but I was with him not long ago and he reminded me about it. Uh, but New Jersey has done that. Other states are doing that. You got to, who, who buys more guns? You know, state, state governors through law enforcement, they buy a lot of guns. And, and so New Jersey has gone out of their way now to make sure anyone who they do business with for law enforcement and, uh, and other groups um, has to meet a certain kind of criteria um, in terms of how they do business in the state. If, if everybody commits to a safety criteria, to a certain kind of um, approach to how we market these weapons, who we sell them to, how we produce them, what we're producing. Because let's face it, you see all these manufacturers trying to make even more and more and more deadly weapons to show up on our streets on a daily basis. Okay, if, if, if governors say to those companies, we're done doing business with you, you won't be able to sell here, that can have a huge approach. Go after the money. And Department of Defense hadn't even thought of it in that scale. But I think that's a great idea. When you think about all of this that has happened to you, your family, the 16 other families, there is after the next incident of violence, um, a platitude that's almost a profanity at this point, right? Which is now's not the time. Now's not the time to, to talk about this. Yeah. And so on this issue, certainly in the media, and I'm very cynical about this. And and I and and I'm humbled by by your by your by your optimism. Um deeply so. And, and deeply respectful of it. But each time when we're when we're when we're told now's not the time, we're not even able to have at an elementary level um, a baseline conversation about what the nature of the problem is. So the easy availability of what is in essence a military weapon, in in the hands of someone who aspires to be a mass killer the the ease of of acquiring that that weapon is is certainly at the at the core of the issue but isn't also the evil of the person how do you think about that do we have an evil person problem do we have a mental health evil person problem? How, how do you think about the manifestation of evil along with that with that weapon? And, and do you think yeah. about it? Do you think about it like that at all? And one of the things that you had said earlier, I want to I want to come back to is 
in the next question is the country has always been a violent place. Mm-hmm. One of the most violent societies on earth. But not because, always deadly. Because, right, the, the society moved ahead of the law. And the, and the first thing the law always did is when it caught up with the society as it moved out on the frontier was imposed some type of restrictions on the use of firearms. Yeah. So listen, there's, so there's two things you just talked about, which is what is the right time to talk about it? And for me, the right time was actually before it was my kid and I was silent and I'll never get over it and I'm never going to shut up. And, and I think after Parkland, we put an end to those lunatics who told us that we shouldn't be talking about this, that we should re- remain silent, that we should allow things to go forward. Um, and we haven't stopped fighting since the day my daughter was killed, and it's not just me, and we're never gonna shut up. And after every instance of gun violence, I try to be as immediate as I can to be out there and talking about it because because the gun lobby has owned this space for far too long. For an example, after Sandy Hook, they remained, the gun lobby stayed out of Sandy Hook for about five days. They gave the families time to just kind of say their things and go through the funerals. And after about a week, Wayne LaPierre came out and said, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That sentence never existed before Sandy Hook. It was a, it's like, we think about it now. It's like, we feels like it's been with us forever. It came about after Sandy Hook. And that was the NRA's response to Sandy Hook and they turned it into a gun sales bonanza. They will never do that on my watch. I will never be silent. I will never ever back down and neither will the others in this movement. As for society, we do have violent people in our society. It's why I'm a huge supporter of law enforcement. Evil exists, it always did. Evil exists in other countries, it always did. What is uniquely different now is how firearms have become a part of the reality that evil exists. When we've more than doubled our arsenal in this country in 20 years, and in that mix is far more deadly weapons, we've taken the reality that evil exists and we've made it easy for them to kill as many as possible. That's what's different now. So I think we need to do everything we can to stop evil. I think we need to do everything we can to help those who have mental health issues. The reality is most of them are turning guns on themselves. I think we also need to deal with the reality that far too many people with evil intent have easy access to weapons. Here's what I think. I think that one of the great blessings that America has had, almost providentially, it has produced seemingly out of nowhere, the right leaders in the right moments. Great example of that is Dwight Eisenhower and 1939 is a lieutenant colonel in the army, hasn't been promoted in 13, 14 years, frustrated mid-level officer. And when you look at 
the improbable leaders who rose to greatness in the country and made a difference, what what they all have in common is a depth of character. And that's what you share with those people. And I think that you are a person who has played and is going to continue to play a vitally important role in our country and its debates in this urgent issue. And I do hope that you will reconsider as a young guy at age 57, because the remedy for the dipshit problem that we are flooded with in Washington, D.C., are people of courage and conviction who will not make compromises or accommodation on right and wrong, and who also don't want to spend 18 years in Washington, D.C. Six years would be more than enough to go up there yeah. for part of your 60s to raise a little hell, travel around, see the military, do some good, right? And, you know, and and come on back, right? So, so one of the things that, you know, we talk about on this show is that you know, whether it's at a local level, whether it's at a state level, at a national level, you have to be involved. And nobody, um, when you look at Fred Gutenberg um, and you look at his courage, you look at his moral stamina, you look at his resiliency and you look at his inspiration has any standing uh, to say that they don't have the space in their lives um, to be to be engaged. And there we see Jamie sitting like an angel on Fred's wing, uh, an inspiration to all of us. And what an honor it has been to be able to spend this time with you, sir. Thank you. Well, my friend, thank you. I, 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 I'm humbled by your, your, your comments there. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, listen, I, I, I always just want to be Jesse and Jamie's dad. It's who I am. Fortunately, um, I've developed access in DC that gives me the ability to work with those who want to do well. And there's a lot of them, by the way, um, and to harass those who don't. And I plan to continue doing that. I, I uh, you know, uh, I, I, I can't tell you I, politics are in my future uh, as, as a candidate, uh, but I can promise you this. Uh, I'm going to keep fighting like hell. Well, Fred, you will always be that and um, much more. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.